In the end of grand strategy, Simon Reich and Peter Dombrowski challenge the common view of grand strategy as unitary. They issue a prescription of any one specific approach chosen from a spectrum that stretches from global primacy to restraint and isolationism uh, in favor of describing what America's military actually does on a day-to-day -day basis. They argue that a series of fundamental recent changes in the global system the inevitable jostling of bureaucratic politics and the uh, practical limitations of field operations combine to ensure that each presidential administration inevitably resorts to a variety of strategies. We're joined today by Simon and Peter uh, to discuss their book and uh, the sort of stories behind it. Simon Reich is Professor of Global Affairs and Political Science at Rutgers University in Newark. He is the author of Global Norms, American Sponsorship, and the Emerging Patterns of World Politics. Peter Dombrowski is professor in the Strategic Research Department at the Naval War College. He is the co-editor of the Indian Ocean Region in U.S. Grand Strategy and Regional Missile Defense from a Global Perspective. I'm Martin Beanie, and you're listening to 1869 the Cornell University Press Podcast. All right. Well, Simon and Peter, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be here virtually, Martin. <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure, too. So the end of Grand Strategy just recently came out, um, your new book. And um, I think we'll get into sort of the details. But I think the thing that really intrigued me is I've talked to you both a couple of times now. And you obviously have this really good uh, friendship and rapport. So... T tell me a little bit about, you know, how you came to collaborate on this. Uh, Simon, do you want me to begin the tale? I, I like my version. You can tell your version. Okay, um, he'll, he'll tell you his version, then I'll tell you the truthful one. Go ahead. So it all began at a dinner in Providence, Rhode Island, when Ned LeBeau and Simon were uh, giving a book talk on their recently published book, uh, Goodbye Hegemony. And I was in the audience, and I had known uh, Simon for probably 25 years at that point, and Ned for almost as long, although not nearly as well. So I was invited to the dinner after the book talk. And it was a really you know, great meal, great conversation with some of the folks from Brown. And in the course of the conversation of talking about you know, the, the ideas underlying Goodbye Hegemony, um, you know, I started talking about my perspective on grand strategy that came largely from working for the U.S. Navy and working from within the government, not so much as a scholar, but as somebody that was an advisor to folks who were actually writing strategy documents. And, you know, I'll just finish that tale by saying that, you know, Simon approached me and said, you know, we should actually talk about doing some work on this and collaborating. And for all the years we'd known each other and all the topics and conversations we'd had, we had ever, never actually collaborated on a writing project. Uh, and it took some persuading and some logistical work on both of our parts to figure out how to do it. But it really began uh, in, a, in a dinner in Providence, Rhode Island for another book talk. And of course, the implication is very interesting because as you move from one project to another through the course of a career, it, it, you, you can try and uh, uh, 
plan out things as best you can. But professionally, some of the most interesting opportunities that arise arise in a very haphazard manner. And, uh, and that was a classic example of how it all began. Uh, from my point of view, uh, what was interesting is yeah, I enjoy co-authorship. I've done a lot of co-authored work. And you know, one of the things that you look for when you're co-authoring is somebody who has a skill set that, that's very different from yours, but that complements it. And in this context, uh, here I was sitting there talking to somebody who I knew very well, but it only then began to dawn on me that while I was very familiar with aspects of the academic debate on grand strategy, in order to write something that was novel and interesting, uh, I really had to cooperate with somebody who had a really uh, intimate and nuanced knowledge of the day-to-day -day operations of the military services. Uh, we didn't want to just write another book which reprised aspects of the current debate about grand strategy. We, we really wanted that empirical component so we could really make our argument very vivid for the audience. And that's what we've tried to do. And, and if I can just, I don't want to belabor this point, but there's another interesting dimension. Um, I think it's fair to say, and Simon, correct me, both Simon and I began our careers uh, in the international political economy realm. Uh, most of our subject matter in both of our books and articles and, and collaborative work with other folks had been on political economy issues. Over the years, I had moved from political economy to international relations, gradually winding up partially because of working for the Navy at the Naval War College, uh, doing security studies, whereas Simon had done a whole bunch of other interesting projects in all the dimensions of international relations, immigration, uh, and, you know, and so forth. And so we kind of met after long experiences in different realms of scholarship uh, on this particular issue. And I think it, it added a different dimension to our perspective that you might not get from other people writing about grand strategy. No insult to them, but just our backgrounds were really diverse from the normal sort of folks that are writing on uh, grand strategy. Hmm. So it sounds, I mean, so obviously you both bring different perspectives and different skill sets which, which complement each other. It sounds very much like a perfect match, which you know I think is evident in the uh, in the final book. And and you both alluded to uh, the subject matter and the current debate. So you know, tell us a little bit more about the actual book, about the uh, the end of grand strategy, and what you uh, both have been trying to do here with this with this project. Well, the. The, the current debate that exists about grand strategy really is notable for two major components. Right? One component is that there's a general agreement that there is something that the United States does called grand strategy and the debates that take place are about which form that should take. And the second component is that uh, most of the notable people who write in the field of grand strategy are actually writing about prescription. That is not only uh, what the options are, but ultimately what the United States should do. And nobody goes back to address the underlying assumptions 
which, uh, which begins with the question, well, can the United States have a grand strategy or not? And the argument that we make in the book, which is novel, is to suggest, well, there are a variety of different grand strategies that can be employed. Uh, it's true, and we systematically in the book go through all the major alternatives uh, with as much nuance as we can. But we're actually focusing on two things. One, is it possible for the United States to pursue a grand strategy of whatever variant? And two, should we be as academics in the business of prescription? I was always taught that social science is about uh, four different things, uh, understanding, describing, explaining causal relationships, and then maybe on the basis of that, predicting. And I also learned throughout my career, not only in my own work, but in studying other people, that when we go through those four different processes from understanding prediction, we gradually get worse at doing it. <laughs> so I'm very uh, uh, reticent or skeptical about the kind of uh, work that not only predicts, but then on the basis of that, prescribes. So we make two arguments. One, that in fact, grand strategy in the 21st century is simply beyond the realm of the possible for a variety of reasons we look in in the book. That in fact, the United States has these, as we identify six variations of grand strategy, and they do all of them every day simultaneously. So why argue about the utility of one over another when in fact the reality from the when you study field operations is that we do all of them every day. And secondly, we're focusing on explanation, causation, rather than prescription, because we don't want to get into the business of that because we think we'll do very poorly if we try and do that. <laughs> The, the couple things I'd like to add um, from, from, you know, largely from where I sit. And one is, it's my own personal frustration. I also think the frustration of some of the, the Navy people and the, the military folks that I work with in my day job with, um, let's just, let's put it this way, the, the, the blithe sort of assertion of what the United States should do in a particular conflict crisis or troubling area of the world. Um, there's not a particularly good appreciation for the complications of undertaking military, much less naval operations. So you, know, you take the example of, you know, let's oppose a blockade on X, Y, or Z company, a country, or let's uh, make sure that a sea line of communication, a, a choke point in the global economy, is not closed by one of our adversaries, for example, Iran. And there's a blithe assumption that because we spend a lot of money in our military and a lot of money in our Navy, and the Navy and the military are very confident that these operations can simply be uh, thought up by a theorist sitting in Washington or a pundit. The operations are much more difficult than a lot of people give it credit for. And this comes out in the book 
and some of the anecdotes we tell at the beginning of chapters, whether it's about you know talking to people that actually sail in the Malacca Straits or uh, people that are actually charged with ensuring that if the Iranians try to close the Strait of Hormuz, that we will be able to open that strait in a timely fashion. And that, that operational dimension informs our argument. The second thing, which is obvious from the examples I've given, is that we chose to work, that we could have worked on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we could have taken the sort of conventional uh, cases that lots of folks use, but we decided in part because of my own background and, and, and depth of experience on maritime affairs uh, to, to work on the Navy, the Coast Guard, the Marines, and how they operate in the, the, the maritime domain. And, you know, there's a fortuitiveness to this because um, if you look at the evolution of American thinking about grand strategy, in fact, global thinking about grand strategy, it goes back for, to all, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who was a professor at the Naval War And America's, he was writing at a time when America's emerging on the grand, grand uh, stage of world events, and he was theorizing about the role of the Navy in projecting national power. So now, you know, more than 100 years later, as the United States is, at least according to some, in decline, we take maritime cases and look at maritime cases in relationship to U.S. grand strategy and grand strategies in, in, in general. And that's something that's very different about the book from many of the, uh, the books that are written about grand strategy. Yeah, I thought that was uh, really fascinating because coming from my uh, non-expert area here, um, I don't think of the Navy anymore whenever I think of the US being involved in military operations. And I, I realize that that's naive to a degree, but you know, you don't see a lot of media coverage of the, you know, it's not like we have naval battles anymore in, in sort of the classic old fashioned sense. Um, and so when, when I saw your project coming through and then, you know, getting into it as, as we're moving towards publication, the, the um, focus on maritime operations struck me as really interesting. And Peter, you kind of gave us a little bit of uh, a reason why you did there, but is there anything else you guys want to say about that? Simon, well, can, I just, can I just jump in very quickly on that? Because I, I think, sure. you know, one of the things that's, it's very difficult for the Navy because the Navy actually hasn't been at war, particularly with a, a peer competitor on the high seas since 1945. I mean, obviously it's had some encounters with other navies and it's, uh, it's participated in our wars largely as uh, projecting power from the seas onto the land. But with the emergence of China, uh, the new aggressiveness at the, after the end of the Cold War of Russia and its rebuilding of the Russian Navy, uh, and the emergence of a lot of non-state actors in the high seas, the Navy's been very busy doing things, but it's not the sort of activities with the same kind of a press and attention on a sustained basis that operation in Iraq, operations in Iraq or Afghanistan, just a few examples in the case. So the Navy has a PR problem because it's out there operating 24-7, 365, um, but it's not having you know, the Battle of Jutland or the Battle of the Coral Seas or Midway. It's sort of doing these day-to-day -day operations. And the importance of these day-to-day -day operations is largely that they're exactly what the things that make the global economy and uh, the freedom of navigation and <clears throat> commercial web that girds the globe possible. 
the fact that you can actually defend against pirates, you can make sure that sea lanes are open. That's largely an American Navy operation, sometimes with allies and sometimes with friends, depending on the context, and sometimes on its, on its own. So many of the operations that we look at in the book are not the high profile operations that other people who write books about grand strategy will discuss. Uh, we don't look, for example, in any detail uh, at the Iraq war uh, or necessarily the Afghanistan war. But what we look at uh, are the things that, uh, the sorts of cases, the sorts of examples that are fundamentally important in if you wish to be a global power. Global powers historically had navies and they were reliant on navies. They always have been and one might argue at least for the foreseeable future they will be. But it was with uh, it's pure coincidence but um, very uh, an apt coincidence that uh, last night I was uh, flicking through my TV channels and, and I came across the movie Captain Phillips, uh, which is a, one of those incidents that we talk about in our book concerning Somali pirates kidnapping a ship. Uh, and uh, 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 piracy off the coast of Somalia uh, really threatened uh, tr the trade routes uh, going past the East African coast into uh, uh, South Asia. And uh, so one of the major maritime operations that the United States has undertaken in recent years was guarding against piracy. Uh, another one we talk about in the book, which people uh, don't tend to pay so much attention to, and, and Peter introduced this to me, and, and I've become an avid observer ever since, is the whole question of military exercises. Uh, military exercises are all about the preparation for humanitarian crises or wars. Um, and they take place unilaterally, they take place bilaterally and multilaterally, and they are major operations, very important, um, and whether you're talking about uh, uh, East Asia, where the United States has been involved with them in South Korea recently in preparation for a potential conflict in, uh, with North Korea, or whether you're looking at uh, various uh, places in the South China Sea, uh, these become fundamentally important for the preparation for conflict and, of course, humanitarian disasters. Huh, great. I mean, I think that that explains a lot of why, the, you know, the, the quote you gave, uh, Peter, I think, with Navy ha has a PR problem. Uh, that seems to be very apparent because we don't hear about these things, sort of the general, you know, the general public that isn't uh, attuned to this. Um, I, I, I want to flip back to something, uh, Simon, you said a little bit earlier that, that you, when you wrote this book, you guys were, were um, intent on not prescribing. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you know, is there a lesson or are there lessons or are there things that can be learned from your book for the policymakers in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to, uh, uh, 
uh, risk uh, by jumping in first and then handing over to the guy that's involved in policy making every day. So, so I understand that this is a little uppity of me, but but forgive me. Um, when when there, there's a big dis distinction between prescription and diagnostics, right? Diagnosing is about well, understanding the parameters of the problem and giving policymakers different options, which is a big, dif a big distinction from the idea of telling policymakers what they should do, uh, which was what Peter was talking about earlier with military officials and the frustration. Essentially, in the context of the book, we develop an argument. We say, well, really, how do you explain that we adopt, say, an isolationist strategy in one context than what we commonly associate as a primacy strategy in the other context? And, and we really look at, therefore, theaters of conflict and distinguish between theaters of the conflict. In the book, we have a series of case studies, and each case study is in a different part of the world. We go as far north as the Arctic, and we look at uh, the geopolitics of the Arctic in one, one context, and we go to the South China Sea in another context, we go to the Middle East, and then uh, we go to uh, the American littoral, the American shores, and, and how the Navy and Coast Guard deal with drug running. And we develop an argument that says the variation in these policies is really contingent on three factors, right? Which is the nature of the actor that the United States is facing. Is it dealing with a pirate? Is it dealing with a drug runner, a, tr a transnational criminal organization? Is it dealing with another state, right? So the first thing is the nature of the, the actor. The second is the nature of the threat. Are we dealing with um, nuclear, potential nuclear or military conflict in the form of conventional war? Uh, are we dealing with uh, pandemics, right? You know, dealing with Ebola. I mean, they're, they're, we, we have expanded the notion of what constitutes a threat enormously since the end of the Cold War. And the third uh, issue that we look at is the nature of potential or actual conflict. We used to basically talk about conventional conflict. Now we deal with conventional wars or conventional conflict. We deal with irregular or asymmetric conflict. And now, of course, we have a new category of hybrid conflict. And when you look at those three different factors in a particular theater of war, a particular area of the world, what you discover is that they configure in a variety of different ways. And we, we suggest that the United States Navy generally responds to these things, bearing these three factors in mind. We call them calibrated strategies rather than grand strategies. So what would that diagnostically imply for American policymakers? It would imply that when you start thinking about the nature of what kind of strategy you're going to adopt, before you make some kind of a priori decision about the strategy. If you look at these three factors and how they configure, it plays a far greater role in determining the Navy's local strategy than anything that's written on a computer in, in an, an American university or by policymakers in Washington. So, so one of the things I'd like to follow up on is, you know, and maybe this is more of a 
personal frustration, you know, in studying international relations for the 30, last 30 years is the sort of simplistic one-size-fits-all attitude of some of the theorists and, and, and pundits and also some of the, the, the political class that, you know, we assert American primacy, we assert, or, 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 or sometimes the candidates will say, well, America be, can be an isolationist and we can pull back to our own shores. And this, and, and, and this sort of simplistic thinking lacking in the nuance of the, the various objectives, national objectives the country's trying to accomplish, misses the dynamic that Simon was talking about. That in some cases, you know, maybe in the Persian Gulf, it's actually appropriate for the U.S. Navy and the U.S. more generally to take a more unilateral goal. But in other contexts, like dealing with China uh, and, and very, various kinds of challenges in the Western Pacific, having this multilateral approach based on exercises uh, makes a great deal more sense given the nature of the challenge. Ultimately, it's also this, you know, one of the interesting things about our case selection is, sorry for the case selection term, is the Arctic case is a place where the American, and the United States has actually almost tried not to think about the national security dimensions of the challenges in the Arctic. Uh, the Russians under Putin have been very anxious to sort of assert their rights, responsibilities, and prerogatives over natural resources and sea lines of communication in the Arctic. And the American political and military class has largely looked at this as a multilateral rule-based system where the geopolitics disappear. But increasingly, with climate change, the melting of uh, the Arctic sea base, it's becoming difficult to ignore the geopolitics. And the simple answer is, hey, we can just let this go and the Arctic Council will deal with this. Maybe insufficient. It may be that the challenge posed by the Russians and the Chinese and the responses of some of our European and Arctic state allies uh, requires the United States Navy and the United States military and the Coast Guard and so forth to play a greater role. Uh, so this is an emerging situation where you can see the dynamic we're talking about in terms of actors and the nature of the conflict playing itself in real time. I, I want to uh, uh, disavow his comment about other people being simplistic because, you know, some of my best friends are these people and uh, I have to deal with them on an everyday basis. Oh, the politician, Simon. Oh, my goodness. I love all the great strategies. I, I think on that disclaimer, we uh, will wrap things up. This was, uh, this was fascinating. Uh, it sounds as though there are a lot of things that a lot of different people can learn uh, from, from your book. And um, so, yeah, I really appreciate you both joining me and uh, telling us a little bit about it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Excellent. Thank you very much, Martin. Appreciate your time. Take care. That was Simon Reich and Peter Dombrowski chatting about their new book, The End of Grand Strategy. You can get that book and uh, pretty much any other Cornell University Press book uh, by visiting our website, cornellpress.cornell.edu. Uh, you can save 30% on, on this book and any others by using the code 09POD when you check out. You've been listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.